0: Hello everybody, welcome back to the Science Dispatch podcast. I am joined as I usually am by Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein on this wonderful occasion of episode 38. We are treading along here. I'm very excited about that. Me too. Chuck, how are you this this wonderful day?
1: I'm I'm very uh, I'm very good. I'm vertical and happy, so that meets most of our requirements. It's the beginning of spring, though. It's not, doesn't feel quite that way temperature wise yet, but I have hopes.
0: (laughs) I have great Well, you're hopeful, you're vertical, things could be worse. Absolutely. So I like your outlook. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's very, very helpful. Well, let's jump into our stories today. Uh, We have, normally we've got like solid science stuff. There's, Nothing really controversial about it unless you happen to disagree with us, which is a mistake. But today we've got uh, some, <laughs> at least one article that's going to push a few buttons, and that's okay. Sometimes we need to have our buttons pushed. So we're talking about uh, an article by our colleague, Dr. Henry Miller. It's called Woke Policies Are a Path to Societal Mediocrity or Worse. Henry's working on a book on how to win friends and influence people. This is the, the first chapter. <laughs> <And> then <laughs> then, uh, then our, our very own Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein has an article called FDA Wants to Label Foods as, quote, healthy. And um, as we were just joking off air, Chuck, that always works out. Labels always work out as they're supposed to. We will return to that in a second, though. Let, let's talk about this this article here, Woke Policies are a Path to Societal Mediocrity or Worse. And uh, it appears that the premise here is that we're, we're just dealing with repackaged p- political correctness and we're putting people into positions where they might very well have another person's life in their hands and they may not be qualified for that responsibility and Henry's deeply concerned about this. So I mean, I'm, this seems to affect your profession very directly. So I'm very curious to hear uh, what you think about this.
1: Well, you know, I, I think that there is – a kernel of truth in, in, in Henry's concern, though I'm not sure that I would posit it in the same way. So I'm going to kind of bifurcate my thoughts into two things. I'm going to talk a little bit about those um, examinations that we have to take in order to uh, get a license uh, to practice medicine. And there are a series of three tests. One's given in the, at the end of the second year of medical school one's given at the end of medical school, and one's given the year after at the towards the end of your internship. And a Henry, Dr. Miller in his article talked about um, the problem at UC San Diego where they decided um, to drop the requirement uh, for anyone to pass the second of those three series of tests. So here's some statistics on those tests. 98% of American graduates pass that test on the first try. And on the second try, because you can take it more than once, 70% pass. So as a result, we're talking about somewhere on the order of 04 to 0.6% of American graduates uh, fail to pass those examinations. So I think we can in general say that um, American medical school graduates uh, have been tested and found to have the basics of uh, basic science, life sciences, and the vocabulary and processes of medicine uh, to practice medicine. With respect to graduates uh, from foreign medical schools, it of course will vary, but they're about 10% lower in terms of their pass rate uh, or their success rate. But again, those that pass, Uh, have been certified um, that they have sufficient knowledge to practice medicine. Now, part of what that really all is about has to do with the fact that those scores are used by the residencies to determine which medical students they're going to take to do further training within specialties like orthopedics or cardiology, internal medicine, vascular surgery, general surgery, and so on. And since there is a real reluctance to use uh, subjective recommendations, these tests have been put into place because they're supposed to signify uh, which are, are the the able physicians. But the, the dirty truth of the matter is that there's been no study that I could find that correlates whether you pass or fail um, these examinations with how good a doctor you become. So that's... Certainly problematic. The other place that I looked at just to get a, a better sense of things was in the other example that Dr. Miller used was talking about how in Delaware they had reduced the uh, the cutoff score for the bar examination. So as a matter of fact, I took a look. Uh, Delaware, as it turns out, who knew, has the highest standard for passing the bar of any of the states in the United States. You, you need the highest score of what was 72.5% in order to uh, be admitted to the bar in Delaware. They reduced it by 1% to 71.5%. So I'm not so sure that that reduction that he talks about, it, it really is going to make a significant difference. In comparison, all those medical tests that I talked about, you need a 60% pass rate. So, so I'm not sure what any of this really guarantees to any of us at all. So that was one thought. The other thought I had had to do with uh, what was my probably very different experience in medical school than, than than Henry. We both went to medical school about the same time. I would be less than honest to say that I went to a lower tier medical school than University of California at San Diego where Henry went. And our class at the time was, had far more women, far more older people, uh, far more um, people of color than, than the standard medical school uh, at the time. I mean, by, by significant amounts. I mean, the, the average age in our medical school class was close to 27. About a third of the class was married. Um, and nearly half of the class was uh, women. And in order to make up for the so this deficiencies is all very interesting,
0: in and you're, individuals' you're education, context here
1: that Henry the school supplied to- tutoring for anybody that needed additional help. And as a result, at the end of four years, we all graduated. And, and, I, and I think that that is the, perhaps a little bit of the counter narrative to this idea about um, promoting people based on diversity or anything else. It's important to, I think, to promote people into positions where they will succeed and to not place them in positions where they will fail. And I, and I think that that... Um, is the, the, the two edges uh, of the sword when we start trying to determine criteria uh, for admitting people into medical school. I, I don't think that you have to have a huge hugely intelligent uh, information base uh, to enter medical school, but I, I think you need to have a number of study skills and if you don't have them, you're just going to founder. I certainly found that to be the case for myself for a long time until I, you know, found the the right way to approach reading books and taking notes and and, and keeping up. So I I think that that may be more the case than anything else. So thank you for going into that detail, Chuck, because it, it
0: you supplied some context that I don't think that that Henry covered necessarily. And sometimes it's difficult to do that in an 800 word article, as as we both know. So. Um, if I'm hearing you correctly, and and again, please correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like Henry has a valid concern, but it, at least in some cases, it seems maybe it's not a grave threat to public health. Right? There's not an epidemic of unqualified surgeons going in to practice. No. is that what I'm
1: saying? I I think that the 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 system is such that that should be the least of our concerns. Um, they do a, a lot of Gathering of objective data in order to allow people uh, to become uh, physicians. And I, and I think that everybody has a baseline knowledge base to work from. But it, it is very difficult, um, and they've tried for years, to uh, take that book knowledge and make sure that it maps out into the, the day-to-day practical realities in the world. Uh, For a while, they were um, going out um, to surgeons who wanted to become board certified and watching them operate. But they discovered that it it made the surgeons so nervous that the outcomes of those patients were worse than what they usually were getting. So they they completely stopped it and said, just send us a list of your cases. Um, So for medicine, it what's going to be the standard for, um, saying that this is a good physician, uh, you know, that it has to do with the kind of patients that they're taking care of, the severity of illness of the patients. Um, some of it has to do with just luck. Um, but again, as I had said, there's no study that's shown that these tests will produce a quote unquote good, good physician, but they, have been shown to produce a competent physician. And that's probably, I think, the best that we can hope overall. So
0: let me play devil's advocate for a second, for one, to make this more interesting. And and two, I'm sure there's people listening to this who are going to have questions along these lines. So, um, and and you've been critical in the past of research that's looked at how uh, physicians interact with their patients and in particular, the sorts of language they use. You know, are they being appropriately sensitive to i forget the exact phrasing they use but are you sensitive to their cultural background are you being judgmental without knowing it and so forth and if i right. remember your stories right you were you were critical in the sense of you know it's pretty easy to write a paper like this without being in uh the room with a patient you know so it, so it's a little it's a little disconnected in that sense i'm wondering if there's a possibility of the same sort of bias affecting research into, into, into this topic that we're, we're talking about, you know, is there a possibility that the right questions are not being asked or the people who are pushing these um, diversity, equity, and, and inclusion policies, are they just sort of assuming what they need to prove and would they really, if there was evidence, would they really report it? You know, so, so take that on in in any way you feel justified. Okay.
1: Well, you know, I, I think that there's certainly a valid argument to be made um that you have a better time relating to your physician if the physician um looks like you comes from the same kind of cultural background as you uh it's not a requirement but it certainly will make it easier so uh, I understand why they would uh want to see more um of the minorities that have been underrepresented in medicine, uh, better represented. There's not a question about it, but simply taking an individual and saying, well, now you can go off to medical school doesn't guarantee that you're going to be a good physician. I think that's one of the things that, that I, that I like so much about my medical school is that they made a commitment Um, to the people that they admitted that they were going to make sure that they they graduated and they graduated having passed all of their examinations uh, and gotten there and some people and and I would count myself amongst them just need some help in in getting there and they provided it the other example that I saw that very much of the same thing was with the uh, with our nation's military academies they will take uh, individuals and accept them into the military academy, but tell them that before you come, we're going to send you back to high school for an additional year so you learn some other study habits. Because they want to bring them in and they want them to succeed. They try to create a, a situation where they can succeed rather than where they're doomed to fail. And I think that the, the example that Henry gave of the, the young girl that was working in his office, that was she was doomed to fail. She was never going to do very well. Uh, In that particular office, she's a high school senior working in the office of the second in command to the FDA. What possible projects was she going to be able to do during that time? And I I think that that makes a huge difference in terms of things. And it may take um, longer than a year or two um, to find people that are interested in pursuing careers in medicine and come from different backgrounds. That that have worked their way up through the system, and we may just have to wait a while for those things to change. Certainly, in the course of my generation, I've seen a tidal shift in in the individuals coming into medicine. The the, the admitted classes look far different than they did when I was admitted to school. That's interesting. Okay. So, again, if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like
0: you're saying it's the job of the medical school and then later the residency to shape the would-be physician into the qualified physician. Is that is that right? It's like if you let someone right. into school, that's not indicative of what they're going to be like 10 years down the road. That's that's the job of their supervisors and their colleagues and so forth to
1: make them what they need to be. Is that correct? Or Yes. and And the hard part, of course, comes when you find someone that's just not going to make it. And you have to break that news to them. And it's obviously er better to make that um, decision earlier than their career than after they've invested eight or nine years in getting to that point. And and that, you know, that continues to be art rather than science. I don't think we're ever going to have a system that says these are the these are the golden children that we should take and the others we can ignore. Fascinating stuff. Still controversial. Probably
0: never going to be settled in either of our lifetimes. No. Probably something we should, we should revisit, though, because I'm sure as time goes on, there will be more information forthcoming. And if there really is a problem with this, um, it, it'll, it'll start to, to trickle into the headlines, I'm sure. So we'll, we'll come back to this. Lots to discuss, but in the, in the interim, Henry, or excuse me, Chuck, it's been, a, it's been a long weekend. What can I say? I'm mixing up names. Okay, so let's talk about your article about the FDA wanting to label food as healthy. Tell us
1: about this. Ah, so the FDA wants to, or the USDA, both want to put labels on food so that we, the ignorant masses, will know which is the healthy foods and which foods to avoid. And this got started actually back in 2015 with Kind, uh, the company Kind in their nutrition bars. And they were told that they were an unhealthy food despite the fact the way they were marketing themselves because their nutritional bars contained nuts and nuts had overall too high level of total fat. And so they went out and they um, appealed that decision. They got a bunch of experts in, and in a solomonic moment, it was decided that we would no longer worry about total fats, but we would look at unsaturated versus saturated fats. And with that, nuts were now longer were, were now healthy once again, and so Kind Bar could uh, relabel their product. And that's what's led to this current idea of trying to relabel based on the latest scientific information. The difficulty, of course, as I tried to say in the article, is number one, there is absolutely no definition of healthy. There is barely a definition of health. So coming up with a definition of healthy foods is is problematic. And and the example that I use was, you know, and you can use the Kind Bar or any of the the nut products. Uh, Nuts are considered generally a, certainly a nutritious food. And according to the new guidelines, would be considered a healthy food, except for the 1% of people in the United States that have a severe allergic reaction to nuts. And you can label it any way you want. For them, it is never, ever going to be a healthy food. So that brings up the second problem with this is that when coming up with these labels, um, we look at populations as aggregates. And you can't really make a determination of what's healthy for me based on what's healthy for the population. They're similar, but they're not necessarily the same. And, and, and that's probably the greatest difficulty with with any of these labels being used.
0: Let me come at this from a slightly different angle and uh, shamelessly attack the FDA here because I have no faith in these folks to carry out this Program uh, reasonably well and give people the information that they need. And let me give you a couple of examples. The first one, of course, is um, the supplement issue we discussed last week, where you have people buying stuff off the shelves at CVS that is at best useless and at worst, truly harmful. You know, people have died from consuming some of these products and the FDA, for one reason or another, um, hasn't stepped in. Um, I think they've come out and said, you know, be careful what you buy or something, but they're not like, there's no teeth behind it. So they haven't done anything there. I find that kind of amusing. Um, And then on the issue of um, quote unquote, non GMO products, the FDA through its, through the primary legislation that gives it its regulatory authority could step in and say, you're not allowed to put these labels on these products because they're misleading and they, they imply health claims that are disingenuous and you're overcharging consumers based on these claims. And this is shameful. And if you don't stop this, we're going to cause you to have a very complicated day. Um, And they don't. So, so meanwhile, while they have these, and there's many more we could discuss, but there's these lingering problems that they could address. They have the authority to address. And instead of doing that, because I'm sure it's, it's politically unpopular and it's costly and so forth, instead of doing that, they're coming over here and they're saying, Oh, we're going to tell you what, what foods are healthy. And I just, I Call me a cynic, I just don't find that very compelling. Chuck, what do you think?
1: Oh, I, I, I agree 100%. And and I tried to make the point in the article, but I'll, I'll try to be a little bit more vocal about it now. And, and this gets back to that old adage about, you know, whether if you give a man a fish, he'll have something to eat for the day. If you teach him how to fish, he can manage for himself. And I think that what's happened is that we're substituting labels for... The kind of materials that we should be teaching um, children in secondary schools, you know, I'm, I'm far older than you, so I remember home ec classes uh, when you would learn how to cook and clean the house and, and manage, you know, some simple things, and, and, and they're all gone. But that's the time when we should be teaching our, our kids how to make some nutritional choices. About what's good for them, what's not good for them, and 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 see how they they work their way through uh, a store and make some choices, make some decisions about how they're going to be able to cook for themselves. I think that that would be a far greater uh, service than putting labels on foods, because otherwise we're going to continue to label foods forever. These special interests are going to apply the politicians. Um, with funds for their reelection in order to get their favorite food on on the healthy list Uh, when all it really needs is for us to have some actual training in junior high school on, on nutrition and it doesn't have to, you know, there's nothing wrong with um, fast foods. It's everything in moderation. We need to teach those kind of concepts Uh, more than we need to um, go through this cyclic dance of labeling things. Absolutely. 100%
0: endorsed there. Um, You know, there's another aspect to this that's frustrating. And by the way, what you just said is excellent. It reminds me of um, public choice theory, this field of economics that says, these regulatory agencies respond to the same incentives that normal people do. So, in this case, they are um, beholden to Congress for their federal, for their annual budgets, and so unsurprisingly, their priorities tend to reflect what the members of Congress want them to reflect because they want money so they can do their job. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that hard to understand. Um, but the other thing I wanted to talk about is that people tend to tread the path tread the path of least resistance. So when it comes to these different food choices, um, chicken nuggets taste way better than green beans, Dr. Dinnerstein. And, uh, you know, frankly, I'm not surprised that people would prefer McDonald's to, you know, getting a pack of frozen green vegetables and cooking them and serving those to their family or eating them themselves. And the same thing with exercise. It's easier to sit on my couch and watch Netflix than it is to go to the gym. Now, I fortunately have have, you know, forced myself to go to the gym a few times, but I still like watching Netflix more than I like doing squats, you know? So all that to say, um, I, there's, there seems to be no accounting in these sorts of, uh, population level schemes for what individuals actually prefer to do. <laughs> and so instead of admitting that we can't force people to live healthier lives, we come up with these goofy plans like, oh, we're just going to like put a label that says this is a healthy food and this is not, <laughs> you know? it's, it's, it's it's sort of like a subtle admission that we've failed here, you know? So give me your thoughts
1: on that. Uh, I I would agree with you. I I think that the failure is that we failed to educate, um, our children in, in, in good eating habits in part, because we've lost them (laughs) to a, a large degree already. There's, you know, there's sitting down to dinner for 20 or 30 minutes, once a day is lost. And I, th- I think that there's a lot of this labeling is designed uh, in some strange way to make up for that. Um, the, the other thing in vis-a-vis the, the gym and everything else is something that Nisan Taleb once said that it has always stuck with me about all these people, uh, that make a very big deal about having the, the right kind of gym look and the gym bag, and they go work out at the gym every day. Um, and those are the same people that you see driving around for four or five minutes to see if they can get a closer parking spot to the gym. And that when, um, faced with the situation of carrying their bags into the hotel will have somebody else do it so that they've kind of put exercise and healthy foods in an isolated area of something that they do and then they go back to their life and do those other things.
0: Yep. Very good point. Very good point. You see the same thing with people who will avoid chemicals, quote unquote, and then they go to the bar on a Friday night and throw back three or four cocktails. No, no concern there, you know. Um, And again, I guess there's just not a, not a great answer here, you know, and, and, and maybe that's the problem is as a society, I'm getting all meta here. Maybe as a society, we just are uncomfortable saying, we don't really know how to solve this right now. (laughs) So instead of saying that, and maybe going back to the drawing board, we keep Banging our heads and doing the same thing, and and we've talked about this before. There's been hundreds of studies done at this point on how you change human behavior at the population level, especially in the realm of diet and nutrition. And even in these studies, the, the researchers will say none of the stuff works. You know, you know, putting more walkways around neighborhoods doesn't work, and putting more water fountains in doesn't work, and banning soda doesn't work. We don't know what to do, but. W- we should try to do more of the same thing. You know, it's like it's just this vicious yeah. cycle, and no one seems to to understand that. I don't. I don't know.
1: No, I I I, yeah, I think you're correct on on that point too. Again, and I will I I'll go back to um, gym class, which I hated. I let me be the first to say that I that I hated gym class. But that was an opportunity uh, to learn about getting up walking around during the course of the day, doing simple things to remain physically fit, remain limber. Instead, it became uh, a place to learn about how to play soccer or football or baseball. And if you weren't any good at that, that was the end of class. Uh, (laughs) But the same people that weren't necessarily good at those sports um could still have gotten a lot out of learning about how to stretch every day and simply walking around and simply just looking at um, the pluses and minuses of a sedentary versus a more active life. So it's just another area where I think that um, we decided to get rid of things in secondary school that were not important and then we pay a lot of price for it later on at a societal level because they're far more important than we th- may have given it thought it's a very good point it's a very good point
0: point. and i think this podcast is yet more evidence that chuck and i would be bad politicians because people would say how do we solve this We'd be like we don't know you know focus on yourself <laughs> it's not uh, there's not much to do but i think in all seriousness what you're saying is good is that you need to need to inculcate these habits in people at a young age and I'm, sh- and of course, school has something to do with that. But you need parents to do that. You need the community at large needs to do that on on an individual basis. And I think that's what what's missing these days is it, it's it's not quite um, disallowed, but I think it's increasingly becoming frowned upon to in any way even be perceived as imposing your own preferences on other people. Because how dare you violate my truth? You know that's becoming more and more common, which I find frustrating. So. Um, Maybe we need to reverse that, and then that's how we get some semblance of progress.
1: Well, I'll, I'll bring it back to the first article we talked about. And I think that an important thing is developing a supportive environment for change rather than simply regulating change. Labels are not a supportive way of bringing about change. In, in, in this case, learning more about uh, healthy eating, having examples of healthy eating in your life, I think are far more supportive in the same way that my medical school was supportive of our training um, than, than, than labels. Well said as usual, Dr. Chuck <laughs> Dinnerstein,
0: And uh, thank oh, you okay. to everybody for, for joining us again. We're treading along here, episode 38 now. I, as I mentioned, very excited about that. So if you want to get the articles we talk about and be a little more informed and prepared to come to the show, you just go to our website. It's ecsh.org. Go to the subscribe tab. Click on that. Punch in your email. Three times a week we will send you the articles we publish. The ones you read are the ones we talk about. And so you'll walk away a little sharper, a little more science literate as a result of that, mostly because of the smart people I talk to. So with that, we are done for the week. We'll be back for episode 39 in exactly seven days. Talk to everybody then. Take care.